Welcome back to Broken Messenger. After ending the Revelation season, I didn't know where to head. I do that after a deep dive usually. My mind sort of needs a break from long, deep thinking. What I usually do is read scripture until God prepares a message for me to share. Sometimes he gives me a topic before the end of a current topic, and other times it's days or weeks later. Because I take deep dives into subjects, I don't follow the one-year Bible plan very well. When I don't know where to go, I usually jump in wherever my church is at. Other times, something intrigues me. Someone says something or I read something that I don't know much about, and as a natural learner, I desire to learn more. This is how today's episode came about. I thought, Jude is the last book before Revelations, and honestly, I didn't know who Jude was or what the book of the Bible was really about. So I dug in. I didn't take, it didn't take me long to realize why Jude wasn't a popular topic. Jude is a one-chapter book in scripture that packs a ton of truth, some of which today's Christians don't want to think about. He doesn't waste any time and he gets right down to the point. Right from the beginning, he says, I am Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now we know James to be the brother of Jesus, making Jude also a brother to Jesus. Technically speaking, they are all half-brothers to Jesus, as Joseph wasn't actually Jesus' father. Could you imagine having your, um, Jesus be your sibling? Like, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good of a child you were, you're never going to be as good as Jesus. I can just see Jude and James saying, Jesus, 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 to the tune of Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> so, anyways, in verse 3, he jumps right in and says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge to you to contend for the faith that once for all was trusted and trusted to God's holy people. Jude is an example that what we want to do and what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do is not always the same, but which we follow is very important and has lasting effects on not just us, but others. Imagine as we go through this book, if Jude had decided it would be easier and better to talk about the salvation they shared instead of contending for the faith. Now let's look at what Jude felt, Jude felt compelled to write about. He says to contend for the faith. Contend is a word that really doesn't bring into like, but doesn't bring the sentence to life for me. I've talked about how when I read, it looks like a movie is playing in my mind. I visualize as I read, and contend does nothing for my visual visualization. I thought I would take a moment to teach a technique I use when reading scripture. When I don't have the use of a dictionary, the way my brain works, I take the word that I don't understand, and I think of its root or another word with the same root. In this example, the word contend makes me think of the word contender, a fighter. This makes it a little easier to visualize in my mind. Now, if I take the definition I've come up with and use it in the sentence, it reads, to be a fighter for the faith. This is a good technique to use when you're reading scripture and don't have access to a dictionary. Root words in Latin have meanings, and those meanings generally stay the same in whatever fashion we use them. Of course, you can always use the dictionary or Google. When I looked up the word contend on Google, I got a really good use of the word, though it wasn't from the dictionary. It said, contending means to fight while standing on the very thing that's being assaulted. It means to stand against all who undermine it. It actually came out of an article written by o Olin Williams. No idea who he is, but it is a great working definition, especially as we read further into Jude. Now, using the same concept of root words, Jude says, I urge you, urge as an urgency, this is of the utmost importance. It's urgent and must take priority over other things. That's the language we're seeing here. I urge you to contend for the faith. So with our working definitions, we could reread the sentence like this. Dear friends, we must urgently stand up against those who are actively attacking our faith. We must stand up for our faith. 
And how can we do that? How can we contend for the faith? Well, let me tell you, number one on the list of what not to do is argue on social media. While social social media can be a great tool for God, we can share, we can encourage, and we can even teach using social media. It is also a tool for Satan, though. And he doesn't even have to have any, like, help in doing it. He just lets us go wild. I believe there's a thing that is called keyboard courage. Being hidden behind the keyboard, one is more courageous in their words, they might not otherwise be willing to say. Nothing is a worse impact on non-believers, in my opinion, than two believers arguing over, oftentimes, the minors, not even the majors. Now, arguing and respectful debate are two different things. But the first and foremost thing on the to-do side is the hunger and thirst for righteousness, to have a desire to continue to strive deeper and deeper in our faith. The best way that we can both fulfill the hunger and thirst for righteousness while simultaneously continuing for the faith is to be in the word of God, to read it, to desire to understand it for ourselves. As we read on further in Jude, we will see why it is so very, very important to be in scripture on our own. Verse 4, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. This is the the theme of a big chunk of his letter. He gets right to the point. There is an urgency to contend for the faith because secretly among you are false teachers, false prophets, fake believers that were written about in scriptures long ago. Jude might have been writing to the Christians in about 65 AD. However, his words then are just as relevant as they are today. Then he goes on to say in verse 5, Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord... Now, before we go into what he's going to remind them of, he says they already know this, but Jude wants to remind them. He wanted to talk about salvation, but there was a need to revisit what they already knew. Before we can talk about salvation and moving forward, they had to get back on track. Sometimes, even though we know scripture, we can get off track. We can grow complacent. We can be fooled. We can fall asleep. We saw all these things in the churches of Revelation. Sometimes, before we can even move deeper in our faith, we have to get back on track. Verse 5, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Jude begins to give examples of rebellion from history. With the first example, he is saying that God's chosen people, because of their own belief, were destroyed even after he had saved them. How does that fit into once saved, always saved? He gives another example in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he keeps in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. He's speaking of the angels that Satan took with them. He corrupted them and they followed him. They, God's angels, chose to abandon God and now they are in everlasting hell. How does that stand up to the theory, once saved, always saved? He gives another example in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of internal fire. These whole cities gave themselves up to these sins. They chose to live the life of sin, and because that, because of that, they gave up the opportunity of heaven. They are examples of those who suffer in hell. Hell is very real. It's not just a make-believe story. It's not just something we tell people to make them behave. Hell is very real, and Sodom and Gomorrah stand as examples. So that's the rest of his examples for the moment. 
Now he moves back to talking about those that he first started talking about in verse 4. Remember, he said, For certain individuals have slipped in and are ungodly and pursuing the grace of God for a license to live immoral lives and deny Jesus. This is what he's talking about when he starts verse 8. In the very same way, meaning just like God's chosen people who refuse to believe, just like the angels who gave up their spots in heaven to follow Satan, just like the inhabitants of the Samad and Gora, in the very same way as all of them, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. How are ways that we can pollute our bodies? Drugs, alcohol, sexual sins, but also worry, gluttony. They can pollute our own bodies. They reject authority. No one can tell them they are wrong. No one can tell them what they need to do. You can tell a lot about a person just how they, just by how they react to hard truth. Their lack of humbleness and hard scripture should that their lack of humbleness that hard scripture should bring about reveals the true condition of their heart. And finally, it says they heap abuse on celestial beings. I really want to camp out here for a minute. I've been talking more and more, not just here on the podcast, but in my life with my friends about the battles that are going on all around us that we cannot see. And because of that, some forget they're even happening. We think of the battle as good angels fighting bad angels, but here it says they heap abuse on the angels, meaning the ungodly people battle the angels directly. We see further evidence of a battle going on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see in verse 9. He says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, Michael was fighting the devil over Moses. Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. A battle over us is happening, possibly as I record this, possibly as you're hearing it. This battle is happening, and these ungodly people Judah's talking about are heaping abuse on the very angels that are likely trying to fight for him. Have you ever tried to help someone and they fight you the entire way, either because they don't know you're trying to help them or they don't think they need help? This must be exhausting work for the angels. Now, some of what I just said, like fighting the angels that are trying to help him and being tiring work, that's just me inferring from the context and may or may not be accurate. But what we can say without a shadow of a doubt is that the angels and the devil are fighting over us and we have the ability to fight them, fight with them and against them. That right there is big kid stuff. Let me say it again in case it didn't sink in the first time. We can fight spiritual battles right alongside the angels. If the ungodly can heap abuse on the angels, wouldn't it stand that we, righteous believers, can also heap abuse on Satan's angels? How should this affect our prayer life? The scripture out of Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I'll be honest, when I read that scripture out of Ephesians, I thought of a battle that was going on that we didn't even know about, that we couldn't see occurring. I thought about Satan's angels and God's angels and them being in battle. In my prayers, I knew of the battle and I prayed against it, but I never thought of myself actually participating in the battle. But if they can heap abuse, why can't we? Why can't we call evil evil? Why can't we be encouraging to the angels that are battling? Why can't we use the double-edged sword and equip ourselves with scripture to strike at the demonic angels? There are some guidelines on how we battle, though. Jude goes on to say in verse 8, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
Now, it doesn't say what kind of abuse the ungodly heaped, but I think it's safe to say that we should not fight in the same manner. Satan would have had no problem condemning Michael for slander, fact or not. But Michael doesn't attempt to fight back doesn't doesn't attempt to fight by getting into a battle of back and forth bickering. But he says, Lord, the Lord rebuke you. Calling on the Holy Spirit, quoting scripture, reminding the demonic angels who you are and who they are, and the power that you have because of it, and the lack of power that they have are great ways to heap abuse on them. This truth should open up an entire new way of spiritual warfare prayer life, if you haven't already been standing in this truth. In Nehemiah 9, 5, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. If we can bless our Lord and be a blessing to the Lord, could we not also be a blessing for the angels? I don't know. Maybe I'm alone out here on this boat, but for the, me, this was a huge wow moment. Not that the manner that I was praying and doing spiritual warfare was wrong, but I just realized that the next level that we can take it to. We have the ability and the right to not just battle demonic things, but we have the ability and the right to battle alongside the angels, to be partners with them. Imagine if Moses had spent his time in prayer battling with the archangel Michael against the devil, rather than complaining to God that he wasn't a good speaker, that he couldn't do the things God was calling him to do. Imagine if we stop fighting what God has called us to do and begin to engage with a spiritual battle, not engage not in a spiritual battle, but a spiritual war. Let's continue and see what Jude has to say about these ungodly people who snuck in among them. Verse 10, yet these people slander what they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct are as irrational animals will destroy them. False teachers will come and claim to have the answers. They hold the keys to others learning their secret knowledge they have. They slander those who question them. They slander what they do not know about and what they do know will destroy them. Verses 12 and 13 says, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit of Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for the, from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved for. Jude was given three examples from the past, Cain, Balaam, and those who turned the Lord's Supper into gluttony, drunken, drunken events. The exact opposite of what the Last Supper was to do. It was supposed to be a time and a place where believers came to get their hearts ready for communion. These are the examples of people who do whatever they want, whenever they want, with no regards to the others. Then he mentions the nature of things, clouds without rain, trees without fruit. These are useless, right? Remember these things are how he is describing the ungodly people from verse 4 that have slipped in among them. So these false teachers he illustrates will be unbelieving, though they say they are believers. They will slander what they do not understand. They will be selfish, seeking to take care of their own needs in no regards to others. And he is telling them they will be useless as fruitless fruit tree. Jude is trying to warn the Christian Jews that, that about the sum of... Jesus, Jude is trying to warn the Christian Jews about some among them. Jude goes on to show the true colors of those false believers among them in verses 14 through 16. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own desires. 
They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Judah is saying, God is going to come with thousands upon thousands of his angels to judge everyone, and the ungodly will speak defiant words against God. They will be grumblers, likely never happy. They will follow their own desires, not God's or anyone following God's desires, and they will have a big ego. And they'll flatter others, but only to get what they want. And then Jude goes on to say, but, dear friends, but is the biggest three-letter word in the Bible. It combines and makes things clear in Scripture. While little, they are mighty and must be important to pay attention to. 17 through 19 says, But dear friends, remember that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers who will follow their own godly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow more mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Judah saying, Yeah, I said all that stuff to warn you, but never forget that God already knows. This time was foretold by Jesus and his followers. And then again, he goes on with with the but in verse 20 through 21. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring to you eternal life. Our relationship with Jesus, our knowledge in him and his word, our righteous is no one else's our righteousness is no one else's responsibility. It is not our pastor's job to grow us. It is his job to provide the provide us with Holy Spirit filled opportunities to grow deeper in our faith via preaching and teaching. But it is our responsibility to take a hold of our faith and contend for it. You do that just as you said here by by building yourselves up in your faith, which is increasing your knowledge, praying in the Holy Spirit, and keeping ourselves ready for the time of his return. That right there is the most important part. We must all be ready for either his return, whenever and whenever and however that is, or for our own physical death. Verses 20 through 22 through 23, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh to hate. The world these days doesn't like to think about this, but to hate is to hold in low regard, to be disgusted with, to be disgusted by even the clothing. The clothing did not deserve to be stained. It was just clothing. But he says, hate even the clothing, meaning every part of the flesh corrupting sin. In addition, in those verses, Judah is demonstrating that different people are saved in different ways and require different techniques. Discernment is the ability to apply that knowledge to each situation accurately. Proverbs 27.14 says, If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. A blessing is a good thing, right? But given in the wrong manner at the wrong time, it will be received as a curse. The imagery of snatching someone from the fire to quickly and perhaps unexpectedly grab someone and forcefully move them could be pretty scary, right? In the imagery of the fire, we relate that to sin, to hell, to danger. To the right person, it is exactly what their heart needs. But if we snatch someone who is a doubter, the blessing of saving someone could be seen as a curse. Judah is reminding us that there is multiple ways to do multiple ways to do things. And just in case we stress about all the what ifs in those situations, what if we say the wrong thing to the wrong person, Jude ends the letter with encouragement that despite all of our flaws, despite our despite our struggles and troubles, it is okay. 24 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. 
and him is being God. 24 through 25, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and evermore. We can't keep ourselves from stumbling. We're stupid, fallen, sinful, broken people who are destined to stumble and fail and deserve the consequences of those shortcomings. But he says that he is able to keep us from stumbling. And Jude already revealed how. He said that in the last day, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. They will divide believers and do not have, do not have in them the Holy Spirit. But he says, but you dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, we will keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for his return to bring us eternal life. If we do these things, he who is able to keep us from stumbling will be our protector. And for that, I'm thankful because left of my own accord, well, to hell I would go, hands down. Jude packed a lot of truth into this one chapter book, his 25 verse letter to the Jewish Christians. My study Bible said that the key verse in the book of Jude was verse three, where he said I wanted to write about the shared salvation, but he felt compelled to urge them to contend for the faith. And I talked about the importance of that, but for me, the big takeaway that I took from Jude was verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies but reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. These ungodly people have the ability to heap abuse on celestial beings. How will this impact our prayer life? For me, I feel like they have the, that they have the same ability. If I, I'm sorry. For me, I feel like if they have that ability, how much more do I have the ability to encourage those same celestial beings? And how much more do I have the ability to heap abuse in the same fashion as the Archangel Michael did, rebuking them, calling them out for what they truly are? I hope that you found the book of Jude to be both a mix of conviction and encouragement and have potentially a new, stronger outlook on your prayer life. And remember, teachers and preachers are called to give the Holy Spirit-inspired lessons, but it is your responsibility to do something with it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Broken Messenger. Unfortunately, this is the end of um, the amount of time that I have for the month of October, so it'll be a couple of weeks before I can come back um, and when, they, when the hours reset in November. So until next time, have a great night.